a lot of times less than 10% or 5% of people who are remaining as non-smokers or abstinent, you know, at a year's time. And most people who quit have tried seven to 10 times to quit before they actually succeed. So the most important thing is if you fail to quit, try, try again. And it's usually those mm. folks that are in their seventh time of trying that they finally then quit. So the most important thing is to have a variety of treatments for them to try. Okay, so if one doesn't work, try another. Um, if that doesn't work, try another. So we need to have more tools in you know, a physician's bag, so to speak, that they can offer to help smokers to quit smoking. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, along with my fellow co-host Will and our guest, Dr. Cindy Jacobs. Dr. Cindy Jacobs is an experienced executive in drug development with expertise in several indications and over 30 years experience in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industry, achieving regulatory success in several product approvals. Dr. Jacobs received her bachelor's degree in microbiology from Montana State University, her master's degree and PhD degree in veterinary pathology, microbiology from Washington State University, and a medical degree from the University of Washington Medical School. Prior to joining Achieve Life Sciences in 2017, Dr. Jacobs has served at Oncogenics in various roles such as the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Jacobs has also previously held positions as Vice President and in clinical research at two other biopharmaceutical companies. Based on her preclinical work at Immunex Corporation, she's one of the two inventors of the patent for Enbro. Dr. Cindy Jacobs, welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So first of all, that's a pretty impressive CV. So it's obviously nice to have you here. Did we miss anything? Is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself in terms of your career and background? <laughs> no, listening to it, it just sounds like a sordid past and history, but yes. <laughs> so basically, for... Two decades, I was in cancer research, um, really trying to bring treatments to treat cancers um, uh, to the market. When Achieve actually uh, merged with uh, Oncogenics, um, I stayed because they were more in public health and looking at smoking cessation. So I thought it might be best to try to prevent cancer instead of treating it. And so that's been an interesting mm. five years with Achieve and even other comorbidities because smoking really um, increases your risk for heart attacks, stroke, certainly COPD. So it's not just lung cancer. So it's really kind of taking mm -hmm. 
the earlier approach where I've spent decades on the end kind of result and trying to deal with it. Exactly. And you're currently the chief medical officer at Achieve Life Sciences. And can you tell us about Achieve Life Sciences and what you do there as a CMO? Sure. So as the chief medical officer, I'm um, responsible for the um, clinical and regulatory development for cytosinicline. Cytosinicline is a treatment for smoking cessation that is in the clinic. It's actually in phase three. We can go into that. That's the latter stage of um, clinical development before approval. And this is an interesting product in that it it actually has been a smoking cessation product in Central and Eastern Europe for decades. Um, we're bringing it over into the U.S. as a new treatment, and we also then looking at expanding it in other places in Europe and worldwide, but right now we're focused with U.S. approval because that's always helpful when you have U.S. approval then to expand it out. Um, with that U.S. approval. So we're a small group. We're focused on cytosinicline for nicotine addiction um, with our first approval for smoking cessation, but then also plans for nicotine vaping cessation or basically a treatment Mm. for nicotine addiction. Question about that. We often hear addiction and dependencies being thrown out there. Is there like a fundamental difference between the two and If so, what are the differences? Well, it kind of is kind of a a range. Um, Obviously, with nicotine, it's highly, you you become highly and quickly chemically dependent. I mean, it's one of the, Mm. um, you know, most addictive substances that you you can use. Um, It's up there with opioids. And so Mm. you quickly become what's called chemically dependent Addiction for me is kind of at the very end where addiction describes that it's affecting your life, that it's um, mm. it's affecting your finances because you're going to spend money <laughs> to buy those cigarettes versus food. You're going to, because you can't smoke, you're going to then change jobs. You're going to work from home. That's kind of an interesting thing with the pandemic, by the way. So it, it's to the point yeah. that it's affecting your life somehow. That's kind of the end Um, kind of stage of addiction and and it's there for nicotine as well as other substance uh, substances that you can become addicted to I can go into a little bit as far as the chemical dependency to kind of go into that a little bit so nicotine binds nicotine acetylcholine receptors um, in the brain and Mm -hmm. when it Mm -hmm. binds it um, elicits dopamine so a lot of chemical um, substances that you get chemical dependency, they, you know, increase dopamine, other things. And so that's how that, when I call chemical dependency, it's kind of down to that, that level. It's a very interesting distinction. And I think back to one of our earlier points that you were talking about, Dr. Jacobs, about how smoking is scientific evidence and research has shown it to be one of the main risk factors for cancer and diseases, um, respiratory, heart, things like that. But I think I found it really interesting that you mentioned the social aspect of how smoking um, kind of seeps into an individual's life and almost takes over. So I think it's we've seen over the last few decades how um, there's been a real push towards smoking cessation and a lot of the focus being on the health side. But what about the 
some additional like social or environmental economic factors? Like, do you think there's um, like an overall societal impact as well that smoking brings? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think um, uh, the CDC reported, I mean, smoking related illnesses in the United States alone cost billions of dollars. I think the estimate was $300 billion each year. So there's mm. a lot of cost to take care of the morbidities and uh, the effects of long-term smoking. Um, so that definitely has the financial, social financial aspect of it. Now, the, the one good thing is, is that a lot of our health insurances basically pay for treatments for smoking cessation, which is helpful. So that shows you that obviously the cost of the insurances and the hospitals and everything for um, what are the, the morbidity and, and mortality of smoking is really still there. I think people think that you know, smoking, it's been, it's been kind of reducing in society, and it has been. Um, however, last year, uh, there was, it was the highest rise in cigarette sales. I'm sure it was due to the pandemic. It will be interesting to see what the statistics are in the next coming year or two mm -hmm. when everybody get, gets out of their homes and, and we have some back to normal life. Um, what the what the statistic will see as far as the increase in smoking or, um, uh, you know, even e-cigarette use. Right. I have a question about that. The increase in sales, do, is that existing smokers smoking more or is that bringing in new smokers or a combination of both? What do you think about that? I think it could easily be a combination of both. Obviously, if you're a smoker and you're under stress, you're going to smoke more. Mm -hmm. If you were a past smoker uh, and you're under stress, you could easily have picked up the habit again. Um, and then obviously, mm. you know, being under stress, um, starting smoking um, could also occur, but it's probably increased smokers smoking as well as sadly past smokers going back to the habit. I remember earlier on like when the pandemic first started, um, there were a lot of reports kind of predicting that um, the pandemic not only will have its own kind of health impacts, but it will also affect many other achievements in health and kind of successes that the global community have taken. Like um, we can kind of de definitely see, you know, smoking as a really good example of that um, kind of the decades work in kind of um, reducing the, I guess, the amount of, of smokers or just the, the prevalence of that almost kind of uh, rebounding back. And I, I would say similarly, um, things like routine vaccinations and like all, all sorts of things. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to, to seeing um, post pandemic and all the research that would go into that side of things and just evaluating the, the true health and societal impacts of this health emergency. To expand that, we are in the middle of our phase three clinical trials during this pandemic. Um, and interesting mm. enough, so we've, we've been having smokers come on to our phase three trial, ORCA2, and interesting during the pandemic, we certainly didn't have problems accruing smokers to the trials. Now, obviously we did at the very beginning because this was really at the beginning of the pandemic when no one could come out and everything was shut down. So obviously that affected our enrollment onto our trials. But once it loosened up, we actually had a lot of interest, obviously, for people who wanted to quit smoking during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now, 
as as you well know, with stress and smoking, it'll be interesting to see how trying to quit smoking during a pandemic might affect the ability to quit smoking or to stay smoking. And so our study will be compared, I'm sure, with previous studies where it, they were done when there wasn't a pandemic. And that'll be really interesting as far as the um, every trial has your treatment compared to just regular um counseling and placebo it's called the placebo arm mm. so those the the rates of success including smoking in the placebo arm will be able to compare with other studies that use placebo arms in a similar manner where those you know quit rates are non-pandemic versus pandemic so it, a lot of interesting information is going to come out here probably in the next year or two you've touched on it throughout this conversation around the success of quitting. So according to the CDC, uh, you know, nearly 70% of people indicated that they wanted to quit smoking, but maybe a mm -hmm. 10% of that were successful. And you've made an argument as to why, you know, the stress during the pandemic and other factors have made that more difficult. So perhaps it's an opportune time to even talk about cytosinicline, like where that fits in the whole smoking cessation space. So can you talk about traditional therapies that have been tried? You mentioned sort of the behavioral therapy aspect of it. Could you talk a little bit more about some of those other traditional uh, medications that have been used and what were some of those shortcomings of those medications? Sure. So one of the things to keep in mind as I'm talking about the various treatments is that it's also been shown that it's a lot of times less than 10% or 5% of people who are remaining as non-smokers or abstinent, you know, at a year's time. And most people who quit have tried seven to 10 times to quit before they actually succeed. So the most important thing is if you fail to quit, try, try again. And it's usually those mm. folks that are in their seventh time of trying that they finally then quit. So the most important thing is to have a variety of treatments for them to try. Okay, so if one doesn't work, try another. Um, if that doesn't work, try another. So we need to have more tools and you know, a physician's bag, so to speak, that they can offer to help smokers to quit smoking. Now, currently, um, behavioral support and just supporting somebody who's trying to quit is an underlying um, important factor of the treatment. And, and most things, mm. um, most of the treatments have that, some better than others, some you get support from the internet, but usually the treatments, um, there's kind of like two categories. One is nicotine containing. So it's kind of a nicotine replacement therapy. So to get someone to stop smoking, they're going to crave nicotine. We'll give them nicotine in another manner like gum, lozenges, patches. I mean, there's a number of products, um, that, that, are out there over the counter um, that people can use. The, the problem with that is it's less effective. Um, the interesting thing is when you chew a gum or you have a patch, the release of nicotine is slower in your system than actually taking it in and smoking through the lungs. So 
it's less effective for a lot of reasons. You're not getting that kind of immediate hit that you would with, with smoking. You're certainly having nicotine in your system to reduce the craving and the withdrawal symptoms that you're going to find when you suddenly stop your smoking. Um, but it's really, that's why it's considered less effective because it, it, um, it just doesn't work as well as when you smoke a cigarette. So then that's why you go mm -hmm. back to smoking. The one nice thing about nicotine is, is as far as the safety profile, I mean, it's, it's basically safe. It's not a toxic chemical except for, you know, it does have, it does have factors like it, it will increase your heart rate. It'll, it'll constrict um, mm -hmm. vessels. There's a lot of things that, you know, is a reason to get off nicotine in whatever form mm -hmm. you're taking mm -hmm. it. Um, but certainly combustible cigarettes with all of the tars and other kind of um, components to it, um, taking nicotine replacement factor, you know, it's a safe treatment. Um, there are only mm -hmm. two other treatments that are not nicotine-based, and that's um, varenicline, which everyone knows is Chantix, and mm -hmm. bupropion, which um, usually is Zyban. Zyban actually um, really... Uh, was kind of repurposed for smoking cessation. It really is for depression. It was um, long, you know, a treatment for depression by GlaxoSmithKline. And then it got the smoking cessation because it too was found helpful. Now, the mechanism behind that isn't really clear other than it showed to be helpful. The problem is it too is less effective. It's, it's about the same kind of uh, studies have shown it's about as effective as nicotine replacement therapy the difference there is it does have um not the clean safety profile there are components of of that where obviously anything from dry mouth to you know it does have a seizure warning so that's where you need something safe to get people who in an in a, in a in a population to quit smoking you certainly don't want to be taking something that has side effects when you're already trying to deal with the withdrawal of nicotine um that kind of goes with with uh, chantix now chantix is very similar in its mechanism um that cytosinicline has which i can go to in in just a, in a minute um, so it's more effective than nicotine and bupropion, and it's been shown in clinical trials that it's more effective. The problem is its safety profile. It uh, definitely has problems with uh, nausea and vomiting is actually what's called the dose-limiting toxicity for that product. Um, but also I, uh, what folks have also complained about um, smokers is insomnia, vivid dreams to the point of nightmares. So it has its safety or adverse event profile, so to speak. And that's where right now what we need is something that's very effective, but very safe. And that's where cytosinicline is um, actually a candidate for that because it should be as effective as uh, Chantix but with a far better safety profile and um, a phase three study that was done by uh, Dr. Um, Walker in um, Australia, actually the trial was, compared uh, varenicline and cytosinicline in the indigenous population, the Mallories in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, and it showed that it was as effective 
for that population. In fact, it almost was more effective. But where it was highly statistically significant was less adverse events than Chantix. So mm -hmm. that's why we're committed to cytosinicline for getting it approved in the U.S. because we do think it is going to be, you know, it should be effective and safe. And we're having to prove it in our phase threes during a pandemic. So that'll that'll be interesting data. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And I wonder, too, if... You mentioned that cytosinicline was is has been used in I think it was Eastern Europe, and now we're mm -hmm. talking about it in the states now. So is this is this a new drug? If if not, why are we only now starting to see uh, mm -hmm. where this fits in the in the realm of smoking cessation? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. We get it asked all the time, um, and so cytosinicline. Um, has been marketed by a pharmaceutical company called Sofarma in Bulgaria. And they are really only interested in their market and, and Eastern Europe. And our founders of Achieve years ago got access of basically an, an exclusive license to develop cytosinicline outside of Sofarma's territories because Sofarma just really wasn't interested in, in looking certainly at North America and other places. So when we, they brought it over to um, discuss with FDA, the problem is there's nothing like it. And so FDA by default said this is a new chemical entity. So when you're a new chemical entity getting approved, you basically have to start from ground zero. Now, the problem with cytosinicline is that it was, it's so, since 1980, a lot of like the non-clinical studies, all the clinical studies were way back where there's a lot more standards now that you have to fulfill. And so we basically had to start over. And it was helpful with NIH and NCI and NIDA. They have actually helped us with millions of dollars in, in starting over. So we do have some assistance. Um, NIH and NCI uh, paid for and actually conducted a lot of the non-clinical studies that we had to repeat that allowed us to, to go and submit an IND. They also helped mm. us with... Um, some of the uh, non-clinical studies that we had to complete before we could even get into our phase three program. So that's been very helpful. But then we had to start all over in, in what's called phase one, phase two um, clinical development before getting to phase three. So if, if I can just continue, I can kind of go with phase one, what did we have to do? Well, I mentioned that Varenicline or Chantix, they're Dose-limiting toxicity was nausea and vomiting. Well, we didn't really know what our dose-limiting toxicity was because those studies hadn't been done. So we had to go and basically keep increasing the dose of cytosine until we saw adverse events that were severe enough that it was like, yeah, that's dose-limiting toxicity. The interesting thing is um, that our dose-limiting toxicity was nausea, but it was giving it at 10 times the doses that it was seen in varenicline. So mm. the nausea and vomiting with varenicline or Chantix was seen at three milligrams doses. So that's why they only give two milligrams a day. 
Mm-hmm. We started to see nausea at 30 milligrams a dose. Well, our dose is three milligrams three times a day, and I'll get to that in a minute. So mm-hmm. there's a huge, what they call, margin of safety for cytosinicline. And that's really where the benefit, I think, of, of this drug is going to be its safety profile versus um, the other safety profiles. Now, phase two, one of the things that the regimen in Eastern Europe was kind of a little complicated. It was, first of all, it was short. It was only 25 days. It started with six doses a day for three days. Then you went down to five. Then you went down to four, three, two. And then by the 25th day, you were taking one dose. And the dose was 1.5 milligrams, not the three milligrams. So with FDA, we kind of (laughs) took advantage of like, okay, if we're a new chemical entity, let's go back and see if we can't look at the dose, look at the regimen and make it better. You know, because we're starting Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. To make a long story short, our phase two program showed that increasing the tablet strength to three milligrams and giving it three times a day, not six, five, four, three, two, just Mm -hmm. three times Mm -hmm. a day worked and it worked for 25 days but we also listened to the smokers that were in those trials and the physicians and they said boy this would be great if it was a little longer it needs to be longer so our phase three program is looking at three milligrams three times a day for six weeks as well as 12 weeks compared to placebo treatment and of course everybody gets behavioral support in the studies yeah, I was going to ask you then, so compared to something like Vareniclin or Chantix, or I think it's called Champix in Canada. So I believe Champix or Chantix is 12 weeks for the traditional uh, treatment. So in terms of medication adherence, is it is there value in it being, you know, that sweet spot between 25 days to six weeks? Do you think that would be an easier sell for patients compared to Champix at 12 weeks or more? Well, one of the things we... Um we have looked at is that the majority of um, smokers don't complete the 12 weeks of, of Chantix. Mm. So we don't know whether that's due to the being tired of adverse events and, and, and stopping because of the nausea, bad dreams or whatever, or is it folks wanting to have shorter treatments because 12 weeks you get, you know, 12 weeks is like, wow, you know, I wish this was a shorter treatment. So that's why we looked at, you know, six weeks versus 12. If both work, it gives the physician an option to somebody who says, God, you know, I don't want a 12 week treatment. Okay, I'll try the six week treatment. Or there might be those subjects who say, listen, I've tried to smoke five times. I'm going to take the 12 week treatment. It's, it's giving smokers options um and if you give them options where it's been clinically approved by the fda then that means then insurance companies have to pay for it so you know that's where it all kind of comes together gives smokers options on what fits their lifestyle and what they want to do Mm -hmm. as far as a treatment yeah i think that's that's a really good point going back to what you said at the very beginning it's almost like um different tools in the bag you know giving the the patients the the, the choice themselves to, to, to see which um, which treatment fits them best and like their own circumstances, their own, you know, behavioral or just factors out, out, out there. So I had a question actually regarding um, the distinction between the nicotine replacement therapy 
versus these other forms of, of treatment. So for nicotine replacement therapy, um, you know, like you like you mentioned, if you're replacing the the smoking with something like a gum or like a lozenge, would it be a continual thing that you're taking, or will it eventually kind of result in the individual not having to take anything? Well, obviously, now mm-hmm. you're talking about addiction to nicotine. So there, you, you know, I think we have family members or people we know that, you know, still chew right. nicotine gum to this day. Um, so coming off nicotine, can't you can still use nicotine gum as long as you want. And it depends on then how you wean yourself off that or don't. Um, interesting enough, FDA requires us to do kind of what's called abuse liability studies to make sure, um, Enchantix had to do it and we're having to do it to make sure that you don't for, you know, get rid of one addiction and then you're addicted to Chantix or cytosine, which obviously didn't occur with Chantix and we're not saying it with cytosine, but what you're getting at is like finally stopping. And that, um, that is also that you're really kind of now touching on one of the ways to quit smoking can be to vape, to actually go to e-cigarettes. Um, and that's somewhat controversial. Clearly, if you can stop smoking combustible cigarettes and go to e-nicotine cigarettes, that's harm reduction just in and of itself. However, it's going to be interesting in years to come on what are the long-term safety issues of what the liquids are with e-cigarettes or nicotine-containing e-cigarettes because it is showing that in some of them, because there's so many different varieties of vapes and and, um, e-cigarettes, that um, a recent study in the Truth Initiative, um, I think, reported that heavy metals such as cadmium, lead, nickel, tin and copper were detected in some of these various um, aerosols and uh, in the liquid. So it'll be interesting to see long term just how safe that is. That's where it's kind of controversial. I think most physicians who are treating nicotine addiction still think, great, harm reduction, get off the combustible cigarettes, go into e-cigarettes, but then get off of e-cigarettes. And that's why we're also starting a phase two trial looking at can cytosinicline or how cytosinicline can help um, vapors, people who are just into nicotine e-cigarettes only, can we help them quit vaping as well? So that's where we're trying to, to apply cytosinicline really strategically with, with market approvals for, these indica- for both of these indications. Awesome. So just for point of emphasis, you're not saying those who currently don't smoke should go and try vaping because it's not harmful. What you're saying is in terms of those who are already smoking, maybe at a high frequency, getting down to zero, vaping might be along that pathway. And we just don't know enough information about it yet compared to combustible cigarettes. Yeah. So here's the problem where it can be worse is it's been, uh, it's starting to become appreciated that sometimes in trying to quit smoking through vaping, you end up doing both. Mm. And that's, that population is being found to be more highly nicotine addicted. And you can imagine because now if you couldn't really quit smoking, but now you're vaping on top of that, 
and you've got Juul and other things where you're getting a lot more nicotine for vaping, so your overall daily content of nicotine is even higher, which means you've just become more addicted to higher doses of nicotine on a daily basis. Now, that's that's the population that I think we're all worried about as far as having even more comorbidities and problems quitting. So you have to be careful in trying to improve one situation that you just don't make it worse. And for some, you you know, that's, that is happening. Um, so harm reduction is stop smoking combustible cigarettes and try to wean yourself off of nicotine addiction in whatever form you have, whether it's, you know, you're a dipper, you're, you know, you'd have snooze or whatever. It's like just, you know, this is where we're trying to position cytosinicline as a way of nicotine, of dealing or treating with nicotine addiction, no matter what source of nicotine you're addicted to. But you have to walk before you run. So our walking is we'll get smoking cessation approved, then we'll go for vaping, and then we'll hopefully at that point be able to have that more broader label indication. Forward-looking statements. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's our commitment, milestone, right, and goal. Right. Forward-looking statements. I think that, 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 public, that point about um, harm reduction, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, it really speaks to you know, the, the whole idea you know, in public health. So we, it's very clear, and it has been for 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 many years that um, you know, combustible smoking and just cigarettes and just a vast array of of health risks that that come with those those products. And it's how can we get the the patient or you know um, the individual who wants to quit to, to to get off of those and into something less harmful to, to ultimately work with them to get to that end goal of hopefully one day completely smoking cessation. I think that's definitely a question that I. Sometimes um, kind of reflect on it's this idea behind these you know novel um, tobacco products and especially these um, these vapes. Like I, I always ask myself, is this a tool for harm reduction or is it um, another avenue or like another marketing scheme by the tobacco industry to kind of make nicotine or nicotine based products more air quotes here socially acceptable? And um, I'm not sure if you if, if you're if you're comfortable kind of sharing your thoughts with that, on that, but I'm. I'd be interested in hearing kind of kind of your your ideas. I think your mm. I think <laughs> the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, as far as these products are certainly harm reduction um, from um, combustible cigarettes, um, but is it a way for um, you know having somebody start vaping that isn't a smoker? I think you mentioned that. That's where. You know, you're still nicotine addiction is nicotine addiction. Um, and we don't have an appreciation for the long-term safety of these e-cigarettes and the liquids and the and the the chemicals in there. If you to get okay, for an example, um, and I think it was uh, 2019 and 2020. Do you remember where the it's called a valley? Um, it was the mm-hmm. the um, e-cigarette vaping associated lung injury. That was really coming to, I mean, everybody knew about it because it was being so publicized. And I believe CDC reported there were 2,800 hospitalization and there was over 30 some deaths. And so everyone focused on where it was coming from. And obviously e-cigarettes was the first thing to be looked at. Um, It wasn't, it basically the main reason, but they don't know if it was the only reason was looking at um, 
something in the liquids. It was the vitamin E acetate and more THC containing um, vapes, but that was the main cause, but it wasn't the only cause. Well, those are the types of things that I think, you know, we're going to find out, you know, maybe later what other things are in vaping mm-hmm. uh, devices in the liquids, whether it's e-cigarettes or THC or whatever that are going to be long-term harmful agents. So that's why there's so much concern in in getting, in having adolescents get used to you know, jewel and other kind of uh, vaping because you're at such an age that, you know, addiction. In fact, most of our smokers in our trials, they're 40, the mean age is 45, but they've been smoking since they're 16 and 18. Mm. So they got addicted when they were an adolescent, whether it's smoking or uh, vaping, that's where I think the biggest social concern is that um, we've just... You know, be careful that we're not giving a, a another avenue of getting new adolescents addicted to nicotine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of for you mentioned forward thinking uh, when when you were talking about a couple key points there, and I was thinking about you know the burden of of smoking. I believe uh, disproportionately in low and middle income countries, and you talked about it's easier from the U.S. once you get things moving along. Once you finish the commercialization of the process, it's easier to bring to other markets. So I just wanted to hear from you where you think a more global distribution of this and even you know whether more clinical trials are needed in different countries to capture those nuances uh, in terms of how it might benefit those societies. So could you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. I mean, that's definitely um, in the future. We, we actually have had discussions with the World Health Organization and usually when they put um, kind of preferred products or, you know, development in the World Health Organization, it's usually because they've they've been on the market for decades and years, you know. So we're not there, obviously, with the three milligram three times a day. Now we could at least look at that 25-day treatment because that has been approved. So we might be looking at discussions of that. It's just too early right now for us to kind of figure out as far as how we would do that. But Mm -hmm. we have definitely been um, in discussion with the World Health Organization in that regard. We do have that uh, phase three study in Australia with the Mallory's where they use the 25 uh, day regimen, but then they kept um, kind of a maintenance out to 12 weeks of just two one and a half milligram tablets a day. So we have to look at what what kind of um, what would be appropriate for expanding out um, as far as cost, maybe lower doses, maybe the original 25 day. Those are all questions that we'll be probably having further discussions. You know, Dr. Jacobs, you've had you spent a number of years in the biotechnology, biopharmaceutical industry, and I'm sure you've learned a couple of impactful lessons in your journey. So I was just wondering if you could share with us uh, some of the biggest challenges you faced uh, in your career, whether it's relating to the specific work of an organization and how you overcame that. Well, loaded questions. <laughs> so um, I think... I think as far as getting products approved, it's um, it's a long and complex process. 
Uh, I think working with the FDA is important and to remember FDA's main concern is safety, okay? Yes, you have to prove efficacy because why would you get approval, but they are totally focused on safety. And um, that's where I think with cytosinicline we're having for once in my life, maybe an easier process with FDA. But um, yeah, it's certainly easier with cytosine that is so, has such a good safety profile versus my previous life where we're looking at chemotherapy <laughs> and Bexar radioimmunotherapy, which definitely has um, safety uh, and adverse events. Um, so it's a lot easier when you have a product that's effective and safe. Um, so it's basically maybe not how you approach it is, what you pick to work on. <laughs> so um, I'm enjoying it right now as far as not having to constantly worry about safety given like it's a chemotherapy drug or something that really is toxic. So given you know, what you've just shared, your life's work to date, what you're hoping to accomplish, what are, your, what are some of your key take-home messages for our audience who either might be looking to go into a career in smoking cessation research uh, from a, either a clinical perspective, public health perspective, you know, or just a general audience listening who might be impacted by smoking? What are your uh, key take-home messages for that? Well, I think definitely anybody that's uh, interested in addiction, is that's fabulous because I think that really... It's kind of a, a, a health kind of issue that is a lot of ways ignored because that really we do need more people that are helping and doing research on addiction because I think it is really crippling society. So go for it. Definitely. Um, I think for smoking cessation, if you're going to go for in behavioral support, I think the most important thing is constantly having that try, try again. If you don't, if you fail, don't worry about it. Try again. You will succeed. So it's kind of like that. Don't give up. Don't give up ever. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.